We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. Today, Democrats move the chains on impeachment, but the big play downfield is coming soon. Should borders be more than dotted lines? A caller flips out on the flip phone and Kim Kardashian puts some clothes on. Welcome to the 180 cast. Welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. And you have tuned into another breakdown session. I'm talking about news, talking about how it impacts the world, this country, you, your future. And I'm doing some analysis of the big takeaways from the last 180 cast interview, which happens every other week and reacting to your thoughts on the flip phone. So excited. And I am also putting in a new segment into the rotation that I hope you like, and I hope it will spark some conversation. And um, of course, obviously, let me know your thoughts on it. We are going to hit some top stories in just a second, but it is Thanksgiving weekend. And I would just like to say, I'm very thankful to be able to be doing this podcast I am thankful for a lot of things. I'm thankful for you for listening, but I am even more thankful for future you because you know what future you does? Future you tells all of your friends about the 180 cast and that they should most definitely listen to it every Friday, roughly around 9 a.m. because that's when we release episodes. So thank you, future you. You bless me. Um, yeah, you know what? You can follow me on Twitter and you can follow me on Instagram at 180cast. But honestly, I don't really care about retweets and likes and stuff like that. I would just really, really like it if you would share this podcast with your friends because that's how podcasts grow. And it provides a lot of very interesting conversation fodder for the holidays. Let me tell you, there is a lot to talk about. And with that, let's get into some top stories. I have three items here, and you may be thinking, Georgia, you can't get through three items. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I will get through these three things, and I will get through it in a timely manner, and you will learn stuff. Here we go. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. I have a story here out of the New York Times from just a couple days ago that gives a small but important detail that could mean a first down for Democrats in the great game of impeachment, because this is all political games, guys, from the New York Times. Okay, this is what it says. Trump knew of the whistleblower complaint before the $391 million worth of aid to Ukraine was unfrozen. He knew about it by way of 
a briefing from his lawyers who were trying to to determine whether or not the whistleblower complaint had to be turned over to Congress or whether they could keep it to themselves on the basis of executive privilege. Obviously, we all know about the whistleblower complaint. We all have the full transcript of the call with Zelensky. There really wasn't anything sensitive here that needed to be covered by executive privilege, which leads one to think, well, obviously, this was about the political implications. I think that that is clear now. Later on in this article, it goes on to say that some of the House testimony basically In some of that testimony, Trump denied a quid pro quo multiple times in private phone calls with officials. But then also in Ambassador Sondland's testimony, he said that he got the order directly from Trump to freeze the aid to Ukraine. Now, all this has to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt because it is the New York Times. The New York Times has gotten things wrong before. As Trump likes to say, they are fake news, but also they do get a lot of things right. So this is very interesting. Assuming they got their reporting right, that does deal a a blow to this idea that um, there was no harm, no foul. There wasn't any exchange of one thing for another, a favor of getting investigations for getting the aid that was already supposed to be coming to them. There were expectations. He felt that until Zelensky started the investigations, that it wasn't appropriate to hand over the aid. But at the same time, he was facing a lot of pressure from Congress to unfreeze the aid. So the whistleblower complaint might not necessarily be exactly what triggered Trump to unfreeze the aid, but it is very interesting to note, and it could have been a contributing factor in making that decision to go ahead and move forward Um, without those investigations having commenced or even being announced. That said, big picture on impeachment and the, the, uh, the hearings. I think that Jim Jordan basically nailed it when he was drilling down on Bill Taylor in his testimony the other day. Uh, he said, Basically, that's just one giant game of telephone. Listen to what he said. This is his clarification. Let me read it one more time. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison that I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 2019 in connection with Vice President Pence's visit to Warsaw and a meeting with President Zelensky. We got six people having four conversations in one sentence, and you just told me this is where you got your clear understanding. Yeah, Trump's behavior in terms of his expectations may not be a very big deal as far as impeachment is concerned. It certainly doesn't seem like a crime. And uh, as as much as Nancy Pelosi is trying to brand this as quote-unquote bribery, that's just not sticking. Um, but you know what might be a big deal in this great game of impeachment? Is this coming hearing that is going to happen in Congress on December 4th. On December 4th, there's a congressional hearing scheduled uh, for the Judiciary Committee on the, quote, constitutional grounds for presidential impeachment, unquote. This was apparently suggested by Jerry Nadler, and it has to do with straightening out the structure and the purpose of impeachment in that, according to the letter that was sent to the White House regarding uh, uh, 
that was basically a notice for this hearing. It says, the committee intends this hearing to serve as an opportunity to discuss the historical and constitutional basis of impeachment, as well as the framers' intent and understanding of terms like high crimes and misdemeanors. We expect to discuss the constitutional framework through which the House may analyze the evidence gathered in the present inquiry. We will also discuss whether your alleged actions warrant the House's exercising its authority to adopt articles of impeachment. High crimes and misdemeanors. This is the central issue. What constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors? That is what this is all about, okay? This is the centerpiece of the the impeachment effort. This is the big play downfield. That is what this is. If you get high crimes and misdemeanors to somehow encompass what Trump did, not only can you pass articles impeachment, which may or may not pass in the Senate, Probably not, but you could definitely pass articles of impeachment. And if that were to happen, this isn't just about Trump and what happens to Trump and whether Trump gets removed from office. Like that just, that doesn't have very much uh, effect on anything besides getting people really, really riled up when we're already riled up because 2020 is approaching. It could set precedent for future situations in which presidents do something similar, maybe Democrat presidents. And if you define high crimes and misdemeanors to be that broad, to encompass, quote unquote, just abuse of power, then like in, in the nature of the way that Donald Trump is alleged to have abused his power, well, now you've got a really powerful tool to use in the future for future presidencies. President Warren, President Sanders, you know, President Biden. This is a huge weapon. You think it's a weapon now? If if you get it like on the books, like this is the precedent for how Congress thinks of high crimes and misdemeanors, there you go. It's a big deal, guys. It's a big deal. December 4th, that's when it's going to happen. Moving on. Two, my third story, really quick. Okay, we need to talk about the border. We need to talk about immigration. ICE and sanctuary cities are at a standoff and have been for years. But um, ICE, their efforts to, to catch the bad guys, as Joshua Childress said in his interview the other day, that's what they told them while they were being briefed before each shift, go out there and catch the bad guys, okay? ICE is having trouble catching the bad guys because of this, the sanctuary city policies. Several individuals, according to a release from ICE, have been detained in Montgomery County for, quote-unquote, serious criminal offenses. Um... The, the acting Baltimore field officer said, the individuals we have lodged detainers against have been arrested in the community and will likely be released directly back into that community. Would you like to know what these individuals have been convicted of? Would you like to know in light of their impending release? 
sexual abuse of minors, sex offenses of the third degree, rape, child abuse, child molestation, more sex offenses, sexual abuse of a minor, rape in the second degree, more sex offenses, first degree murder, attempted first degree murder, assault in the first degree, assault in the second degree, and it goes on. These are bad dudes. And apparently, they're going to, their release date isn't precisely known. But uh, I wouldn't have released this statement if they didn't think it was going to happen very soon. Otherwise, what is the point? They would be released into the public after serving their sentences. Just, just back into the public to just go do whatever. Because they're undocumented. Does that sound like a fair policy to you? People are always talking about compassion and like this idea that it's a sanctuary city. This is where it's safe. This is where you don't have to worry. Well, you know what? I'm pretty sure the other people who may be undocumented and came here illegally, but are just minding their own business and trying to build a better life for their families, do not appreciate gang members and cartel members with major sex offenses on their record running loose in their community. Just a thought. And not only would releasing these criminals be evil, but refusal to cooperate with the feds means that potential terrorists are unlikely to be caught, just in general, based off of these sanctuary city policies and the refusal to enforce the law. Back in 2011, U.S. citizen Mansur Arbabziar, pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right, He tried to buy a hit on the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. from a well-known Mexican cartel. The name was never disclosed, but it was disclosed that it was a well-known cartel that has, like, roots all over the place. He went so far as to say, on a wire, because he was talking to an informant, he said that he didn't care about the innocent civilians that would be killed in the process of using C4 explosives to blow up the ambassador. No big deal. Just make sure the guy gets blown to bits. I bring this up because these are the sorts of situations that you will have more and more of the less you enforce the laws and the less cooperation the federal government has with regard to national security. This isn't just about immigration. This isn't just about not deporting people who just came here to work. This is about who do we know of that is in the country and what are they, what are they willing to do? Like the members of the cartel obviously are people that we need to know about. And if your, your policy is not documenting anybody, well, then you're not going to have much of an idea of who these people are and where they are and what their history is and whether or not they are prepared to receive over a million dollars in order to commit acts of terrorism against the United States of America. Yeah. Those are the implications of sanctuary city policies. And speaking of sanctuary cities and national security... Let's move on to talking about some of the takeaways from episode 36, which was my interview with Joshua Childress on why he left the Border Patrol after working there for several years on the border patrolling the border for his libertarian ideals. What's up with that? 
Well, I will tell you. I was so excited to do this interview because mm, it is not every day that you find somebody who has done such a complete 180. I mean, working on the border and capturing people and processing them and taking them to detention to saying basically that we should have more or less open border uh, policies, definitely free and open immigration and no wall. This is, I mean, it kind of blew my mind. So I was very, very curious to hear exactly what his thought process was. And I found that thought process very revealing. And I think there are a couple things that we can walk away from this that we can apply to anything else that you might change your mind about. Namely, well, take a listen to this first soundbite. Because I always thought it was weird that I was libertarian except for, you know, foreign policy and immigration. Um, So I kind of started seeking out like, well, what are these libertarian ideas on immigration that I'm missing? So I started seeking these out. Um, Reason Podcast was one of them. Uh, uh, Unregistered with Thaddeus Russell was very, and he was one of the first people to have me on his podcast after I had left. His was very, very influential on me. I mean, there's a lot. There's it's too much to name. But um, essentially, I just started listening to these other people's ideas and then like internalizing them and and wrestling with them, I started realizing I had a lot of blind spots in in my views on you know what is moral and what is what is worth enforcement. It's almost like if people actually have time to think and they're willing to think long and hard about things and deeply, they might realize that they weren't right about everything. They might come to the conclusion that they've been wrong about quite a few things. I remember when I was painting the cabinets when we were renovating our house, which is a massive job. I was painting the cabinets and I had all of these cabinets laid out in the garage. And it was like at least a week long project to finish all of these. And you know what I did? I did exactly what Joshua did when things slowed down on the border. He had a lot of time patrolling back and forth on the border. And while he was doing his job, he could listen to some podcasts like the ones he mentioned. I had time to listen to some podcasts too. And let me tell you, when you are just doing mindless work, painting back and forth, you have a lot of time to think and listen to podcasts and That is when I became a Calvinist. (gasps) I know. I'll have to talk about that some other time. But I think that this is kind of a big deal. Like you you could just glaze over that and be like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And he was thinking about this and he changed his mind. But in 2019, we are so inundated with things that keep us busy and things that keep our mind occupied and we are always like receiving input from whatever screen we're looking at at any given time that 
how many of us are really taking time to actually sit down and think about something really hard? Like, I do that because that's part of my job. But if I were not doing that as part of my job, I would not do that nearly as often. What would the world look like if everybody took like an hour a day to sit and think and go deep into topics with podcasts or with books or things like that and to reflect on them? Way, 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 way back in like episode 17, I want to say, I can't remember, I'll put it in the episode description, but I interviewed somebody who threw out his TV. So he doesn't watch TV anymore. He doesn't have cable. And that's just, it's just not something that he does anymore. And we had this conversation about what would happen if we turned off the screens and we didn't watch TV. We would have so much time on our hands because most adults watch like the amount of TV that they consume is like a part-time job at least. Something to think about. And you should definitely go back and listen to that episode because it was very, very fascinating. Moving on though to the next takeaway, this, according to Joshua, was really his aha moment. So I started to write an essay about why I believe my views on immigration were correct. Um, I, I got like three paragraphs in and realized, oh, this argument is complete crap. <laughs> like, it, and it was essentially the the to, to boil it down. My argument was, well, I have a house, I have a family, and I put a wall around my house. So, what is to say that I shouldn't have a wall around my country and force people to to uh, knock at the door before they come in? Um, which is, I mean, that's a pretty popular. Most people, I think, that that have views on immigration believe in some version of that. Uh, but if you if you take that to the logical conclusion, well, most households are run in some sort of dictatorial fashion. You know, the parents make the rules, the kids don't get much say, they do what they're told, and the country is not a family. <laughs> it's not meant to be a family, and I don't personally want my government to represent the way my household is run. The first thing here is when you sit down to write something, that is a step further than just thinking about something and reflecting on it after you've read it or after you've listened to it. It's it's like a different kind of process. When I sit down to write something, I will have these thoughts in my head and I will have this opinion and this thought process and what I think is a coherent thought. And then I put it down on paper and I realize, oh, that's not, that doesn't make any sense or that wasn't what I wanted to say or there's obviously a hole in my reasoning here. Like an article that I, I just was working on over this past week, I realized that there was a huge like philosophical gap in the argument that I was making. And so I had to turn to some other people who were smarter than me to sort of like work this out in a back and forth setting in writing. Sitting down to write an essay is probably the most effective strategy that I know of to really figure out what exactly you believe. 
what do you believe? And then what do you think about what you believe? Is it correct? Are you going back and analyzing it? Of course, you're going to go back and analyze it and think, does this actually make sense? Does this line up with the other things that I believe? You should try it sometime. If you want to solidify exactly where you stand on an issue or even like what your worldview is, maybe the doctrines that you subscribe to, sit down and write about it. Really, sit down and write about it. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be classically structured in the essay format. But write about it coherently. Build an argument. Build a case for your thesis. And see what you come up with. You might be surprised at how your mind changes after that. But before we move on, I did want to address this this issue of the house analogy, which is an analogy that I have even used. Like you put locks on your front door. Why wouldn't you have a wall around your country or at least on the border that is most volatile and from which most of the violence and, and the, the immigration spills? So when I was doing this this um, this interview and listening to Joshua, I took note of this, but I didn't ask for clarification on it, and I really wished that I would have. So I went back and I asked Joshua to clarify exactly what he means by the country not being like a family and not having an authoritative structure and how that translates into his thoughts on border security. So I'm just going to read what he wrote so that you can have clarity on it too. He said, so the idea has two main components. One is that the way a person owns a piece of property is different, legally speaking, than the way a group of people collectively occupy, say, a neighborhood, city, state, or country. So the country doesn't belong to the president or Congress, even though they are elected to represent the people living in it, in theory. The owner of a property enjoys the right to privacy on the entire property. That is not the case with public spaces, which are shared. The second is that people in a household have relationships that don't really translate to how they interact with others in a neighborhood, let alone fellow citizens hundreds of miles away. So even with the absence of children, there is still an intimacy involved in decision making, which cannot translate to a national, state, or even city level. So it's not an argument against locks, it's just that comparing, it's just that in the analogy you're comparing to dissimilar concepts. That made a lot more sense to me. I think it'll make a lot more sense to you. I still think at the end of the day that the analogy is, it, it kind of roughly works because households are concerned about security and people who they don't know coming into their home. And countries are also concerned about security and people they don't know coming into their country who they don't necessarily understand the motives of and whether they might be intent on doing them harm. Like I said earlier in the Top Story segment, back in 2011, 
there were uh, members of the cartel who were willing to carry out a hit on an ambassador to the United States. It's kind of a big deal. But those are my thoughts on episode 36. I do encourage you to go listen to it. I thought it was really interesting. If you're more of a border hawk, you might have steam coming out of your ears, but it'll clean them out, right? It's good to have steam coming out of your ears every once in a while. If you're not, then you're not challenging yourself, in my personal opinion. Also, you should definitely keep an eye out for the bonus content from that episode that I'm going to release at some point during the holidays. Keep an eye out for that. We talk about what it's actually like doing the job down down on the border, patrolling the border, what happens to the people who are apprehended, and what Joshua thinks can be done about the violence on the border. So I thought it was really interesting. I think you will find it very interesting as well. Now let's talk about some woke stuff with the woke of the week. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. The folks over at Jacobin Magazine are very, very mad. Well, at least one of their authors is very, very upset that in the MSNBC Washington Post debate, the all-female panel was not representing feminism very well. In fact, they were doing a disservice to feminism. They were net happy that this panel asked some questions that were sometimes within the realm of reality and the answers to which Republicans might actually be interested These women, they're just not woke enough. Rachel Maddow, who is totally a partisan and is like the leftist counterpart to Sean Hannity, apparently is just not woke enough to be in charge of asking questions for presidential candidates. And this is despite the fact that they spent actually spent a lot of time on quote unquote women's issues. Like, just listen to... Just listen to a couple of the the questions that was asked during the debate, and you tell me if this is just not woke enough for you. No parent in the United States is federally guaranteed a single day of paid leave when they have a new baby. A number of you on stage tonight have plans to address this. Senator Harris, you're one of the candidates proposing legislation to guarantee up to six months of paid family leave. And Senator Klobuchar, you're one of the candidates proposing up to three months. I want to hear from both of you on this, starting with you, Senator Klobuchar. Why three months? Paid leave. I thought this was a big deal for feminists, right? This is something that we're all supposed to get on board with, with paid leave, because Europe does it, and so we should too. But there's more. Thank you for that. Vice President Biden, the Me Too movement has forced a cultural reckoning around the issue of sexual violence and harassment against women in America. Are there specific actions that you would take early in your administration to address this problem? So we've got Me Too in there as well. Sexual violence. That's a big deal. Seems very woke to me. But wait, there's more. States, including right here where we are tonight in Georgia, 
have passed laws that severely limit or outright ban abortion. Right now, Roe v. Wade protects a woman's right to abortion nationwide. But if Roe gets overturned and abortion access disappears in some states, would you intervene as president to try to bring that access back? Senator Klobuchar. Did you think they weren't going to talk about abortion? Of course they talked about abortion. And not only did they talk about abortion, but they asked the candidates whether they would intervene if states exercised their right to stop people from murdering innocent human lives. That is so woke. It's so woke. Wait, what is the problem with this writer for Jacobin Magazine, whose name is Sarah Lazare? Okay, Sarah, Sarah Lazare has a big problem with talking about paid leave, talking about abortion, and talking about Me Too. Do you want to know why it's just not woke enough for Sarah Lazare? Well, I'll tell you why. Quote, What makes the fawning over the November 20th debate particularly tone-deaf is that the moderator's questions were both inane and right-wing. Their inquiries were almost entirely premised on defending the benevolence of the U.S. empire, marginalizing political positions deemed too far left, and asking gotcha questions from the right on issues from health care to immigration. Trapped within these ideological constraints, the debate actually struck a blow against feminism and was a blessing to the forces of chauvinism and austerity. Yes, a blessing to the forces of chauvinism and austerity, if I ever saw it, was talking about paid leave and abortion and me too. She also had a problem with this question on the border wall. I just have to share it with you. The worst question of the evening came from Ashley Parker. Quote, you've said the border wall that President Trump has proposed is, quote, a monument to hate and division. She said to uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, would you ask taxpayers to pay to take down any part of the wall of the nation's southern border? Oh my gosh. This was a problem, though. This was such a problem. You know why? Quote, the border wall is both a symbol and tool of white supremacy used to gin up Trump's racist base and reinforce his administration's lethal deportation apparatus, which is detaining more than 100,000 children and escalating a crisis of deaths and disappearances in the borderlands. That the right-wing talking point of what about taxpayers was used to insinuate that tearing down such a wall is a problem one has to answer for should be beyond the pale of any feminist. You want to know what I think? I think that this article just proves that giving people free stuff, like paid leave, and giving them the right to conveniently kill the human lives within them is not enough to satisfy the left, which is what drives the thumbscrews within the Democrat Party and motivates its base. And the far left is falling farther and farther and farther to the left. I think that it shows that wokeness slash feminism is really just neo-Marxism, which is just Marxism. I mean, think about her complaints. 
the border wall is a tool of white supremacy, insinuating that tearing down the wall is a problem one has to answer for is beyond the pale of any feminist. It's a right-wing talking point to talk about what about the taxpayers? I mean, if you haven't woken up to the fact that the far left are pretty much just a bunch of communists, then you're not paying attention. Because in this article, Sarah Lazare talks about the fact that we need to not be concerned just about the people within our own country. And there was too much concern and focus within this debate on what Americans are interested in, like paid leave, and not enough interest about what the rest of the world is dealing with and what the rest of the women citizens of the world are having to go through. Workers of the world, unite! Yes. We will not truly be woke until communism has conquered the globe. Those are my thoughts. Should we check the flip phone? Let's check the flip phone, shall we? I'd like to have an argument, please. I have a different interpretation. Anyway, I have a message here. I have a message. And it is spicy. And it is about the last episode, as you might imagine. Okay, here it is. It was frustrating to hear a former Border Patrol um, guy say we should open the borders. That the concern of terrorists crossing over was not much of a threat. That your chance of being killed by police was greater than being killed by a terrorist. He has no respect for our police officers. He obviously does not have respect for our laws either. That you should be able to break the law as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Yes, speeding can hurt someone. Yes, doing illegal drugs can hurt people. Yes, closing our military bases around the world does hurt people. Yes, opening our borders does hurt people. Spicy. Okay, there's there's like a lot to unpack here. Let me start off by saying he didn't say that it's okay to break the law it's just that he thinks certain laws are unjust by the principle of if they do not have a direct if if your actions do not have a direct negative impact on somebody else then they shouldn't be regulated so he thinks that there should be much fewer laws because a lot of the laws that we have on the books are laws that regulate arguably just your own behavior like Smoking marijuana, for instance, doesn't have a direct negative impact on somebody else. Um, okay, let me, let me just <laughs> unpack a little bit more of this. The whole thing about the chance of being, uh, having a greater chance of being killed by the police than being killed by the terrorists. Yes, that's, that's, that's technically true, but I see what you're saying, and I think if you dissect that a little bit further and look at if you're a law-abiding citizen what are your chances of being killed by the police versus killed by a terrorist it might still be that you're more likely to be killed by police but really what goes into this is what are the policies that are influencing those statistics if we had much less security at the border and much less security in general and maybe less 
Um, it may be fewer officers around the world gathering intelligence and so on and so forth. Our national security might look different. We might have fewer foiled terror plots and your chance of, of dying in, in a 9-11 type attack or just a mass shooting could be a lot higher. So, it, I mean, it really all comes down to to policy. It's not like, you know, your chance of drowning versus your chance of being struck by lightning. Um, yeah, this is these are some strong opinions here. I'm just going to leave it at that, I think. This idea that opening the borders hurts people, uh, I think you'd have to be a little bit more specific on what opening the borders means because Joshua still thinks that people who come across need to be documented and need to be fingerprinted. And, you know, um, any any docu- documentation that, they have should be reviewed but is that enough is the question and i have talked to people like michael cutler who is a former ins officer and has testified before congress and writes a lot about these issues now he thinks that that's definitely not enough but we'll see i mean it is important to listen to other people who are coming from a radically different perspective. And hopefully, although these were very strong statements, there may be something else that you took away from this episode, if you think about it, that you might be like, hmm, yeah, I see where he's coming from. Maybe I should rethink that. And if you do rethink anything, please call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. Those are my thoughts. Okay, moving on to my new segment that I'm introducing into the rotation that in this case is is going to replace the usual debunking of conventional wisdom. I call it uncorking the culture. Yes, uncorking the culture. We are going to talk about pop culture. We are going to talk about its effect on the rest of culture. We may or may not discuss some film or music criticism in the future as well. It's kind of a it's kind of a more of an open ended thing that gives us the opportunity to talk about a lot more stuff because cultural things matter perhaps more than policy things. And as Andrew Breitbart used to say, politics is downstream from culture. I mean, I I tend to think that it kind of just flows in a circle. But either way. It's really important. And what I have to talk to you about today is from Teen Vogue. And according to Teen Vogue, the bodacious Kim Kardashian is toning down the nudity. Yes, she says she is is moving away from the, uh, the, the thong bikinis and the constant nudity on Instagram and the very revealing outfits toward some more modest, more reserved wardrobe pieces you might recall i don't know if you you caught this but a few weeks ago um on 
Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which I don't watch, but I, I caught this in the media. On Keeping Up with the Kardashians, there was a big hubbub because Kanye West, he had opinions on the way she dresses, which is very, very sexy. You are my wife, and it affects me when pictures are too sexy. Of course, it's like a formal underwear. It's hot. It's like it's hot for who, though? And I didn't realize that that was affecting like my soul and my spirit as someone that's married and loved and the father of like now with about to be four kids. You've built me up to have be this like sexy person and confidence and all this stuff. Yes. And just because you're on a journey and you're on your transformation doesn't mean that I'm in the right. I'm in the same spot with you. So. Okay. All right. So. All right. All right. Cool. From the sound of it, it sounded like Kim K felt a little bit blindsided. Like, oh, where is this coming from? My sexiness hurts your soul? And him saying, well, hot for who? When he did build her up to be the sex icon that she has been up to this point. So she admits that Kanye may have something to do with her decision to dress less sexy, but... Also, in an interview she gave with The Cut, she said, I also think that, like, I'm okay here in the White House because she was there for uh, prison reform. And then the next day, I was posting crazy bikini selfie. And I was thinking, I hope they don't see this. I have to go back there next week. <laughs> yeah, that would be em- embarrassing. I, I, I'm, I might think that, yeah. That might be embarrassing. She also said, I think I have gotten more modest a little bit. I don't know if it's the fact that my husband has voiced that sometimes too sexy is just overkill and he's not comfortable with that. I listen to him and understand him. Still, at the end of the day, he always gives me the freedom to be and do what I want. But I have kind of had this awakening myself. I realized I couldn't even scroll through Instagram in front of my kids without full nudity coming up on my feed pretty much all the time, and I definitely contributed to that. So the way it looks to me is that there's two influences here that I think are really important and really worth talking about. One is what Kim just said about putting her her kids first basically is that she couldn't even scroll through Instagram and if her without nudity coming up and if her kids are looking over her shoulder like they're being exposed to that and she's got four kids so Kim Kardashian in a way is putting her kids first and setting aside what has heretofore been a very big part of her persona like this this image that has been projected to the world that has helped make her so famous. And she's putting her kids first. And this is important because, okay, if you if you don't have kids yet, kids change you. And people say that, but kids really change you. And they almost always change you for the better. Like when people find out that their spouse is pregnant or their girlfriend is pregnant, most of the time, they they shape up. They quit drinking. They quit smoking. They quit smoking marijuana. They quit staying out late and partying all the time. They find better paying jobs. 
They quit swearing. Kids have like a civilizing influence on adults. They really do. And it's so interesting because, right, it's like our job to teach them. And in a way, they make us better because we understand that that is our job. Kids are awesome. Really, if you are on the fence about whether or not to have kids, you definitely should have kids. I am 98% certain that it will make you a better person. It is the hardest thing that you will ever do in life, but it will make you a better person and you will find yourself making different decisions. Like I used to have like kind of a bad habit of swearing. And when I gave birth to my firstborn, I really tried to scale that back as much as possible. And I, and I still like, I don't, I don't swear out loud. Sometimes in my head I swear and I'm working on that. But I don't swear out loud anymore because I don't want her to be exposed to that. And, you know, you're more careful about the things you watch, the things you eat, the places you go, the music you listen to, the way you dress. She's done this for her kids. That is a really, really admirable thing. As much as people have like rushed to her defense and piled on Kanye for saying, you know, sexy for who, like, this hurts my soul, etc. I mean, you can't fault her for for choosing her kids over her Instagram feed. So that's the first part of this. Kids are awesome. Kids make you a better person. The second part is, I think that Kanye West's conversion to Christianity probably does have something to do with this as well. And it definitely fits into a general trend, which is the more Christianity you have around, the more civilized the world becomes. Um, and, And that goes down the line from very, very serious things like infanticide, like the the rise of Christianity virtually eliminated infanticide in many parts of the world where it was very, very common. So really serious things like that to less serious things like modesty. Christianity has that impact, even if the person making that choice isn't a Christian themselves, the people around them have a big influence. I think that Christians underestimate the influence that they have. Maybe not with their spouses, because maybe their spouses are already Christians, but with other people in your family who aren't believers, with the friends that you have, you have um, a bigger influence than you think you do. And people are watching the way you act. And it is not just about hypocrisy. It's like, The way that you act, the things that you wear, the music that you listen to, all of that rubs off on people. And the things that other people are listening to and wearing, etc., are going to possibly rub off on you. Who's influencing who in this situation? And it certainly seems like Kanye West has, with his newfound faith, been the one who's been doing the influence, influencing and putting himself out there and maybe perhaps kind of making a fool of himself and sort of bumbling through it and not being as thoughtful as 
he should be because, I mean, he was bringing this on Kim Kardashian the night before the Met Gala because this whole thing was about this corset dress and it was like see-through and and covered in like glittery, sparkly crystals. And they had been working on this look for the Met Gala for like eight months. So, you know, maybe not spring that on somebody right before a major event like that. Maybe talk about it eight months in advance when they were first thinking about what to do for the Met Gala. Um, But he's having an influence. And obviously, it's well beyond his music and his real legacy. I mean, you can say what you want about the album Jesus is King. You can say what you want about Sunday Service. But the biggest legacy that he's going to leave behind is with his wife and with his children. And he's having an impact on that. And that is something to be admired and something to strive for. And that is all I have for uncorking the culture. And if you want to hear more, just let me know. Let me know on Twitter or on the flip phone at 323-909-1802, where you can flip out or you could try to flip my position based off of something I've said on this podcast, or you can tell me about your own flip-flop slash conversion slash 180 story, 323-909-1802. Again, feel free to follow the podcast on social media, but really, future you, give future you a pat on the back, because future you has told Everybody they know that would possibly be interested in the 180 cast, that the 180 cast is definitely something that they should tune into every week. And we release episodes every Friday on SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and a variety of other podcast catchers. With that, I do hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend, that you cherish your friends and family, that Maybe you watch some football, but you don't take it too seriously because that's lame. And have a good one. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Crack. In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.